Normally, I'd say open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, because we're going through the Old Testament. We finished Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers is next. We'll save that for next week. By the way, Numbers is God's people in the wilderness. Anybody want to live in the wilderness? No, that's not where you want to be. So come next week. We'll talk to you about how to avoid the wilderness. Instead, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you haven't been there in a while, it's in the wisdom section, Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Song of Solomon. Uh, You'll get there. If you're 60 plus, which I'm not yet, uh, you'll hear the birds in the background. Not the B-I-R-D-S, the B-R-D-Y-S. They had a popular song and they stole the lyrics from Solomon. Verse, uh, Verse one says, everything there is a season. Notice that, to everything. There is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then he lists all this time, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that which he labors I have seen the God-given task to which the sons of men are occupied, and he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he's put eternity in the hearts of men, except that no one can find out the work that God has done from beginning to end. Uh, This is King Solomon, the wisest man to ever have lived. He wrote four books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote over a thousand songs. He was a political genius. He understood horticulture and natural science. He took Israel to the zenith of her power. Again, one of the most brilliant people to ever walk the face of the earth. And God allows him to write a book of the Bible in blatant honesty where he goes on a quest to find happiness and fulfillment, the holy grail of life. What's all this about? And he goes down all the alleys and all the back roads we would expect. He looks at wealth and prosperity and wisdom and academia and pleasure. All the things we think will find us true happiness and success. And he looks at this, and here's the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun means without God's involvement. The way so many in our world look today for true fulfillment and happiness. And he opens the book of Ecclesiastes Not as Solomon, but as the preacher, right? He's older now. This is what older people do. They preach to younger people, right? Don't do what I did. Listen to me. This is how it works. Don't go through the school of hard knocks. Learn from my example. And this is the conclusion that Solomon draws. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. 38 times he uses this phrase, vanity. He said it's all a waste of time. It's all... There's no fulfillment. It's it's vain. It's fleeting is the idea. He uses this phrase, chasing after the wind. 
Uh, every time I read that, I think of little kids, right? You, you buy the little soap bu bubbles for them, and you take out the magic wand, and you blow it, and you wave it, and all these bubbles go out. And you watch little kids, their eyes light up, right? These, these bubbles are floating in the air, and they have to have one. And what happens? They get there, and they grasp it, and it's gone. And it's a shame we don't take that idea through life because all these things are fleeting, Solomon said. They're all vain. You know, we get there, we get to the top, and we can't hold on to it. And Solomon said, here the conclusion of the matter. This is all vanity. And then in chapter 3, he looks at life for a brief and shining moment under heaven. And it makes all the difference. He looks at the span of life with God now involved and notice what he says. There are seasons of our lives. If you live long enough, you're going to ebb and flow through these seasons. Um, there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. If somebody dies, it doesn't mean God's mean or he's uninvolved. It just means that's part of the seasons of life. And it says here that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a purpose for everything that we go through. All these seasons, there's a purpose to it all now, Solomon says. And he goes through the gamut, right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to dance, a time of war, a time of peace. Solomon said in the course of life, you're going to go to a lot of weddings and a few funerals. You're going to name children and then you're going to put names on tombstones. If you live long enough, you're going to go through the gamut of life experiences because that's what it means to be human. And he said, who can know what God's up to? <laughs> he didn't know about social media in 2020. Because a lot of people think they know what God's up to. I get a lot of the feeds. I'm not on Facebook or any of that. But, oh boy, there's a lot of Christians who know who God wants in the White House. Why we went through a pandemic. Why this happens. Why that happens. It says here, no one can really know what God's up to. We don't know his mind. Solomon said there are seasons in our lives. In a church our size, with people watching on live stream, um, we're all in a different season, right? Chronologically, we're in a different season. Spiritually, right? Some of you are in the summer of your Christian experience, the spring of your experience. Some of you are in winter. We're all in a different season. But just about a year ago, we all collectively entered a season called COVID-19. I'll never forget, I was with my youngest daughter, Carly. She was home from grad school, and we attended a Philadelphia 76ers game. And as we were leaving, someone yelled out, you just attended the last NBA game of the year. Now, we'd heard about COVID-19, right? The news was on every night, and we're like, wow, they're shutting the NBA down. Uh, the next night, we had dinner for our entire family because Carly was home. And little did I know that everyone around that dinner table, all adult children, would be in my house for the next seven weeks in what we call quarantine, right? Um, in years to come, everybody will say, where were you in the quarantine, right? Used to be Kennedy was shot, Martin Luther King was shot, 9-11. Now it'll be, where were you, who did you stay with in quarantine? Our vocabulary changed overnight. Words like social distancing, sheltering in place, COVID-19, Dr. Fauci were all new to us. I have a note here, do not expand on Dr. Fauci, it'll get you in trouble. I'll be a good boy. We had to rely on government and civic leaders, none of them who told us they were rookies in handling a pandemic. 
Politicians who were used to kissing babies and stealing their lollipops would now have to actually lead us through something. And for the first time in human history, we were locked down, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, For three months, they closed churches, which was unthinkable, but to be fair, bars, strip clubs, those things were all closed too. I remember when we were first closed, fighting to get back, and I said, as long as Disney's open, we're open. And then I got a text, Disney just closed. (laughs) On Easter, I stood here and preached to virtually no one. And I shared in that message, it's probably the first time in 2,000 years, think about that, where the church did not gather on Easter. The year that they started writing the King James Bible, 1604, uh, there was a pandemic in London. It was one of the worst London ever faced. I think one out of three Londoners died in that pandemic. They still had Easter. We didn't have Easter. The predominant emotion of this time was fear, right? No one knew how contagious COVID was. Uh, The news media kind of exacerbated things by putting, you know, CNN, the death chart every day so we could see it. Uh, We had the toilet paper fiasco, if you remember that. People panicked, trying to buy goods, etc. Personally, for me, I thought the AIDS crisis of the 80s was far worse. You know, I'm in a text with millennials. It's like a sports thread. And I shared that one day. I said, you know, I think the AIDS epidemic was worse. And they said, you were afraid of a sexually transmitted disease, to which I responded, we didn't know it was sexually transmitted. We thought if you sat on a stool or drank out of a glass of water or went to the bathroom, and that was a death sentence. And so this became a scary time for everyone. Now here we are almost to the day a year later. A lot of people have been sick. Almost 40% of all Americans have contacted COVID. Some asymptomatic, some really sick like I was. Uh, a lot of people have died. Uh, we won't know what the numbers really mean, the three to five years, because most people that died, died of secondary conditions. Uh, we'll put a graph up, Mike, if you could put that on the screen. This is actually a worldwide COVID chart. Uh, you probably can't see the numbers, but, but the blue is active COVID cases. The yellow is recovery. You know, every time I share 98% of people recover from this, I get emails. People thinking I'm fudging the numbers. These are CDC numbers. And you might not even be able to see the red. Red's way down in the bottom. Uh, Those are actual deaths. And again, we won't know the numbers for a long, long time. Uh, Our economy shrank, which may have been a good thing. wasn't good for business owners. I come from a small business background. Uh, Think about what we do here. If you think of this as a quote-unquote industry, we do like the three worst things anyone can do. We have large gatherings, we have a restaurant, and we have a school. Early in the pandemic, I sat in countless meetings looking at three lanes we could be in, and one of the lanes is, man, we could be in deep, deep trouble. Uh, So many people that own restaurants and small businesses had to shift, and, you know, our hats are off to them trying to survive the pandemic. Uh, World travel came to a halt. Cities like New York City were decimated. New York City depends on about a million visitors a day to survive. And, of course, that's all been shut down. Emotional health went in the toilet. I don't know how much you read about this. Uh, Pre-COVID-19, in the United States, one out of five white women were on antidepressants. One out of five. 
One out of six Americans are on some form of medication for mental trauma or illness. The one thing about the pandemic that was really fortunate was it really didn't affect children or teenagers much. The sad thing is suicide is up across the board. It's extremely up in the teenage, college age category. We vowed to keep them safe from COVID. We didn't keep them safe from lockdown. Looking at screens is not the way to live for an entire year. Uh, the virus was scientific in the beginning. We heard everything about the CDC. It turned political because we were in election year, even till this day. Again, nobody, nobody has said we're rookies at this. And even today on both sides of the aisle, they're either playing one or two games, uh, blaming someone or taking the credit. Then the virus became moral. And I learned something. When my dentist and hygienist came in all those years wearing a mask, I didn't realize they were trying to protect me. See, I thought I was the one with my mouth open and they were wearing a mask because they could get my germs. Then I found out, no, the mask was protecting them. And so my faith in humanity soared. All those people who were trying to beat me onto an airplane and then when we get off the airplane, they're trying to beat me. They all now love me and that's why they were wearing masks. So my faith in humanity actually increased. Added to the pandemic, we had racial tension, a divisive election, the introduction of cancel culture, and a siege on our nation's capital. And there's something almost everyone overlooks. 2020 began with the death of Kobe Bryant. We had our retreat that weekend. I stopped at a Barnes & Noble, had a cup of coffee. I get a text, Kobe Bryant died. It's like the bottom fell out. And that was 2020 off and running. A year later, we have a vaccine, and COVID's going to be in our rearview mirror soon. We don't know when. Here's the question. What do we learn? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about the church, the people we love? We have to learn something, right? You don't want to waste a crisis. I share when the pandemic started, you're going to find out a lot about who you are and what you believe. We know this from sports. We know it from the military. Uh, heroes come in the arena, not in practice, right? In peacetime, we don't know a lot about anybody. We find out in wartime who people really are and what they really believe. So I want to look at something, lessons learned a year later from the pandemic, and this isn't going to be my perspective. Here's what I did. I went out and interviewed 12 individuals, nine in the U.S., three foreign, six full-time in ministry, six are not, 10 are men, two are women, the age demographic from 30 all the way to 70. I asked each and every one of them, give me three lessons you learned from the pandemic. I'll add into that my own experience. I've been in 12 states in the past year. I've been in blue states and red states. I've been in Boston, Massachusetts. I've been in San Francisco, California. I've been to Texas twice, Florida three times. I've been to Mississippi, Alabama, Rhode Island. I've seen the gamut of the experience. As you would expect with this cross-section of people, all believers, many of them had similar answers. We learned to value family and friends more. Time was more meaningful. We learned that heaven was our home. Life is fragile. 
Almost no one talked politics, masks, or Fauci, thank God. The reality is, we already knew all these things. Pre the pandemic, all these things were preached on. We can read them in our Bible. But again, when, when you get into the arena, things change. You find out a lot of who you are. So here's the first lesson that I learned, and I think a lot of people learn, is that we need to embrace the seasons. This is what Solomon says here. And, and let me tell you, this is only a season. COVID-19 is a season. In case you didn't get the memo, this will pass like everything else has passed. Some people think it's the end of the world. Some think, people think we're going to become a communist country. COVID-19 is going to pass like everything else. Now, when it passes, life might be a little different, right? Like, so after 9-11, we have TSA to go through, right? TSA, hell. But that's kind of like a first world problem. When COVID-19 is in the mirror, things will go back to normal and people will forget most of these lessons. One of the things Solomon teaches us here is whatever you're going through in life, wherever you are today, you're only in a season. It's not going to last forever. But can we embrace the seasons? Now, I'll be honest. When COVID-19 started, I sulked, whined, and complained. First of all, I had COVID-19, so I didn't feel good for three weeks. I complained about leaders, political leaders, uh, uh, overreaction. I, I had a myriad of thoughts like everyone. And then I had a Zoom call with Dr. Henry Cloud, talking to a bunch of pastors. And he said, guys, whether you know it or not, you're signing up for one crappy year. And when Henry talks, I listen. And I thought, all right, this isn't going away. This is real. And I learned a lot about the church, the Big C Church and our church here at Delco. Sam quoted this earlier. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thought about that verse and I said, wow, in 2,000 years, the church has faced a lot. Thrown to the lions, faced emperors, pogroms, pandemics, uh, governments, uh, fiefdoms. The church has had everything thrown at it, and it's not only survived, it's, thri it's thrived. One of the surprises of the pandemic is we started this thing called live stream. Now, a lot of churches already had that. In fact, we had it, but it was underground. Uh, for some people that moved away from our church, we gave them a password. It was kind of like a Mickey Mouse operation. I was so proud of our little Navy SEAL team staff, where when we gathered during the week, we had to turn this sanctuary into a TV studio overnight. If you were here during the pandemic, uh, it drove me crazy. This place looked like a junkyard. Computers, tutorials, we were building things uh, for color contrast, uh, trying to figure out everything. Most churches that were a one or two at this level are now like a seven or eight. Just so impressed with the church, uh, discovering media and what it could do. The results have been fascinating. We've talked about, you know, what we're seeing here. Most churches will tell you their attendance grew online and they reached people they thought they could never reach. Uh, people were telling friends of friends. People were watching from other countries. Uh, we discovered Zoom Bible studies, which I know most of you are sick of by now. And then when May rolled around, we got real excited. Because when it looked like churches could come back, the way they were supposed to come back was outside. <laughs> we kind of looked at each other like, outside? We've been doing church outside for 15 years. 
We even have t-shirts that say, we do church outside. We had other churches coming interview us. How do you guys do all this? And we're like, well, I've been doing it for 15 years. It's hard work, but we kind of think we know what we're doing. And so we started doing Sunday morning, sometimes Saturday night. That was one of the cool things of the pandemic. You could just say church was any time. It didn't matter, right? People had nothing to do. They were home. Here's where God surprised us. And this was the phrase I started to use all the time. We started to see God build a new congregation from scratch. People will come up to me after the service. I'm Catholic. Catholic churches aren't open. We never heard the Bible taught before. People that were Methodist and from other denominations were telling us about their experience. People were driving one and two hours from North Jersey or Lancaster. People were coming here just because we were doing baptisms. Here's another surprise we found. The people that were new here, they were bringing friends. It was amazing. The baptisms we did on the lawn last year were more real than I've experienced in all 15 years. I began adopting a phrase and sharing this with my staff. We're not taking attendance anymore, and, I, and we really don't care who's not here. Now, we care about people, and we love the people on live stream. Don't, don't get me wrong. But we're going to love who is here. What that means is we're going to have a little more time to spend with people. We can walk the aisles, talk to them in their seats. We can talk to them in the table, outside. People can linger a little longer. Right about this time, Mike Montgomery, he was pounding on me. I want to get the youth group back. I want to get the youth group. The COVID-19 doesn't affect them. And I'm like, Mike, you don't understand. Parents are going to think I'm a virus denier and, you know, it's going to be bad for me. He finally beat me down. I let them start meeting earlier than uh, most people got back. And a tremendous phenomenon happened. Uh, they became closer than they ever were, and their numbers grew. By the end of the summer, when public schools said they were going to be virtual, those kids who came to our youth group started begging their parents, could they go to Innovate Academy? And our school doubled. By Christmas, again, I was using this phrase, God surprised us. During the pandemic, when we were doing live stream, Adler Roberts, who works in our middle school, and he's also a youth pastor, his wife, Anna Walker Roberts, started to come. She teaches in the inner city. She was bored. She has a background in film. She became a live stream camera operator. When the summer rolled around, I said, Anna, do you want to work at church this summer? She's like, yeah. She goes, I think I can help you do research and a couple other things. I said, Hold it, Anna. I've got about eight things I can't get to. I want to give you one of them's an extension campus. We've been trying to do this for a long time. Uh, never really found the right person. All I asked her to do was research. And she walked in one day. She goes, I'm not going to hand you research. I'm going to hand you an extension campus when this is all over. In November, two weeks from our launch date, I called her on the phone begging her that we should not start in COVID-19. Remember the long, dark winter was coming? She talked me out of it. I finally sat alone and said, you know what, I've spent so much of my ministry time encouraging people on what we should do, I'm not going to hold somebody back that has this kind of passion. Last week, in a pandemic, only three months into our extension campus, we had 80 adults in attendance. It was awesome. God surprised us with new members, new staff, new students, 
and really a lot of new stories. I've been sharing some of these stories. Uh, we're getting emails from all over the world and people that are here and just over, um, just, just, just amazed at what God is doing in their lives. Last week, this woman wrote our children's pastor, Dave Balavone. She said, Dear David, my wife Julie and I are Delco natives and have lived in Raleigh, North Carolina for 30 years. We were introduced to C.C. Delco about seven years ago, um, and we always loved Pastor Bob and whoever taught. Uh, we moved to Raleigh, and during COVID, we were able to watch Sunday morning via live stream. This aspect of the internet has been absolutely a blessing. Uh, last Sunday's message on generosity was phenomenal, as uh, Bob's son spoke on how we can use our many gifts that God has given us. We enjoy the energy of the worship team and overall youthfulness we see during worship. You know there's something in special church when you see young people rolling up their sleeves to make a difference. After the service, your call for Easter eggs, we felt a nudge to contribute in a small way. I hope the stickers we put in the eggs can be utilized in other children's programs. Keep flying the flag at Delco. The Philly area needs sound Bible churches. A woman from North Carolina sent eggs, sent eggs, not eggs, she sent eggs here. It's impressive. We don't want to waste the season. To waste the season is to be bitter, to question God. Uh, Barna tells us 40% of the church is missing right now and 20% is never coming back. Bitter, disenfranchised, bad habits. By embracing the season, I've learned that I'd rather go through a difficult time with God than an easy time without him, and I mean that. I really do. Uh, Pre-COVID, many of us were maybe in the summer of our spiritual experience. Sunrise, the sun set, God's favor was on us, life was good, we went to church, we were Christians. But we don't grow much in these times, do we? Now, I love these times and I want to be there. One Puritan writer says, growth comes in difficult seasons. He says, as believers, we have a tendency to fall asleep in sunshine, never in a storm. James says this, and I think most of us have it memorized. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubt, for he who doubts is like one driven by the waves of the sea, tossed to and fro. For let no man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord in that state. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Maybe you're in a difficult season right now. Uh, maybe COVID's re revealed some things about you that need to change. I just want to tell you, you're only in a season and you need to embrace the seasons. Because when you embrace the seasons and the difficult times, you'll find God on the other side and he'll surprise you like he did me. Second thing we learned from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think the pandemic, is life is fragile and the brevity of life is real. Look what Solomon says in verse 2. There's time to be born, time to die. I do a lot of funerals. Whenever I go to funerals like you, it's 
probably why we look at advertising. I look at tombstones, right? I look at names. I look at numbers. The one thing common to all tombstones is the dash. That's what Solomon's saying. It's time to be born, a time to die. We don't know when those times are. You certainly, listen, for all those self-made men and women out there, you had no percentage or part in arriving here. Does everybody understand that? And you'll really have no part in leaving here. Basically, everyone's giving a dash. Solomon said there was more to learn in the house of mourning at a funeral than the house of feasting. Go to a wedding. Go to a wedding, you dance, maybe you drink too much, you have a good time, there's not much to learn. When you go to a funeral, there's an object there. It's the way of all the earth. It's a place we're all going. Our culture understands death. We just think it's abstract. No one lives on farms anymore where you see animals die, etc. We have hospitals and facilities. Most people will never see another human being die. It, death is something we think is technically true, like, man, I'll go to my grave. Believe, you know, we use all these euphemisms, but it's kind of unimaginable that it'll ever really happen to us, right? Living through the pandemic has brought out something that I think is interesting, that a lot of Christians are afraid to die. Now, believers should be. Believers should fear death even though they say it's just natural and all that, I'm actually surprised how many believers fear death. Now, that's okay. The Bible's honest about it. It calls it the king of terrors, the last enemy. God gave us an overwhelming desire to live. This is all we know. And also keep one eye on eternity. Jesus told us, be of good cheer, I've overcome the grave. He's the first fruits of all those who arise from the dead. He told us in his father's house there's many mansions. He's going to prepare a place for us. He told us there's going to be a great reunion, a great marriage supper. Abraham will be there, Isaac will be there, loved ones will be there. God's the God of the living, right? All this kind of softens the blow. Verse 11, and, and here's the tension, guys, for real. God put eternity in your heart, right? So you got all this DNA, all these organs, all these natural things going on in this body, this, this suit, this earth suit. And then the heart, which is the seed of wisdom and desire, it's where we think, etc. God put a slice of eternity there. C.S. Lewis famously said, that's why you'll always be a little disenfranchised here. Even in the great of the great times, Everything will wane here. This is why Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now again, CNN, you know, their ratings are up 20 percent because they give you the death chart every day. Breaking news. There's the number of people that died every day. Right? They should be ashamed of themselves. I'd love to start a channel where I gave you a box on how many people died in a car accident today. Still the most fearful thing you do every day is get into a cage of steel and get down the highway at 60 miles an hour with other people. What about the death chart for cancer? The murder rate? You can go on and on. Tim Keller, pastor's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Many of you read Tim's books, listened to his sermons. 
I thought this was interesting. Last February, right before the pandemic got real, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, he has re recently written a book. Not a, well, he's writing a book, but he recently wrote an article for The Atlantic, which is a left-leaning publication, but they highly respect him. In this article, he talks about how he and his wife were 69, ready to turn 70. They felt vibrant and youthful. He had ministry endeavors he still wanted to do. He wanted to love on grandchildren. He thought he had a lot in the tank, and God had a lot for him to do. Shares in the article that he went through the dark night of the soul. He said, I've sat at bedsides counseling people who are dying. Now I'm on the other side. He pressed into the Psalms. He pressed into everything about heaven. He said, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, his wife, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdened with its demands that are impossible to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our embraces, sex, and conversation bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns in my heart, slowly I have discovered that I was made to live forever and that God's word is truer than I ever believed. My wife lost her closest cousin and friend to cancer, 52, this year. Last week, Lenny Janitis died. Lenny was 70 years old, played on our basketball team here, was uh, part of the Lithuanian basketball Olympic team. Lenny was more on fire for Christ at 70 than almost anybody I know. After the first service, he was in the prayer room. Second service, he taught special needs kids. I would invite him to my house to watch basketball. All the young guys would talk basketball. It's all Lenny wanted to talk about was the Lord. When I told my son Lenny died, my son said, only in heaven will we ever know why God takes a man like that and leaves others. I remember what something that Pastor Oscar Maru said in Nairobi one time. He said, it's almost like we're trying to close every door on how we get to heaven. Because we made heaven our home here. That's why I never like this phrase, stay safe in the pandemic. I, I understand what people are saying. I get it. But the only safety we have is that God has given us breath and one day he'll take it away from us. So the question I have for you is what are you doing with your time? Do you know you get about 36 million minutes if you live to 70? Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Problem is you're going to sleep 12 million away you're going to work 12 million, another five for eating, showering, doing stupid things like cutting the grass. Doesn't leave a lot. What are you doing with your dash? What are you doing with your one and only life? Someone sent me a text. Here's my vaccination day. I'm like, great. Does that mean you start tomorrow here volunteering and everything? When I got COVID-19, one of my colleagues around the country said, wow, that's currency. What are you going to do with it? You're going to visit people in the hospital? You're going to give blood? We're already in meetings about 
in a few short months, we need a volunteer revolution. We need people back serving. This idea that a church got a one-year timeout, nowhere in Scripture. Lesson number three, I think a lot of us found out we, we were a tad more American than we were Christian, if you're honest. I don't know if you know this, advertising is amazing science, and they know what they're doing. So here's the idea. You read your Bible, you're a child of God. Uh, the Bible says a lot about who you are now. And then every day, the world tells you you're a consumer. That your life consists of stuff. And you say, no, it doesn't. And then you go into Costco and you've got the cart like everybody else. As Americans, we're addicted to comfort. You find that out when we go to the mission field. When we go to the mission field, we need all the creature comforts. Paul Brands, an orthopedic surgeon, spent half his career in India and last half in the United States. He said, in the USA, I embrace a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. He said, patients in the USA who have the best comfort in the world, anyone in the world, but they're far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. What he's saying is we're soft. One person told me that they finally realized in the pandemic all the things that were important to us weren't locked down. The word of God was never locked down. Every one of us could open our Bibles. The Holy Spirit wasn't locked down. Worship wasn't locked down. Now it might have been locked down here but you could turn music on in your home and sing with all your heart. You know, singing is something most people don't do. Don't take for granted what we do here on Sunday morning. Singing means we're filled with joy. Singing means we have hope. I read a book on the Holocaust with this little girl. She survived the Holocaust. She said, I knew something was wrong when daddy stopped singing. Uh, when, when the government said we could go to church, they said we shouldn't sing. I know from somebody on the inside, a state representative, all those rules, by the way, for churches, restaurants, were all written by 25-year-old interns. I like to flip things on their head a little bit. Imagine Satan when he heard that edict. Don't sing. He was the worship leader in heaven. And he rebelled against God. How he must have loved that edict. Don't sing. Because he's an ingrate, and he's selfish, and he has nothing in him that wants to worship God like you and me. Maybe for the first time as Americans, we can sympathize with those who have lived this way almost all of their existence. People in North Korea and China, the early part of the Roman Empire. Maybe we realize we don't need all this stuff. Look, I like stuff. I like new drivers. Stuff's cool. But Jesus said your life doesn't consist of the stuff that you possess. You're not a consumer. You're a child of God. For three months, none of us bought a shirt, a pair of pants, shoes. We didn't get haircuts. Did all right, didn't we? Time is a commodity. Businessmen will come up to me and say, oh, I used to get on a plane Monday and come back Friday, and now I learned a lot. I'm like, wait a second. 
What'd you learn? Oh, well, now with Zoom, I don't have to travel. Wait a second. I don't know if you know this or not. You were always in control of your time. Always. Every one of us is allotted 168 hours. Every one of us is told in Scripture, take 24 of those hours and rest. Recalibrate. Oh, but you don't understand. Yeah, I understand. You wanted to make a certain amount of money. You wanted a certain lifestyle. Listen, busyness is a virtue in our society. If you're busy, you're successful. We were always in control of our time. The last thing I want to leave you with is Solomon said God made everything beautiful in its time. Every February, I pick up uh, one book on black history. Now, I, I read black authors, diversity of authors all year. But every Black History Month, I walk into Barnes & Noble or a bookstore, and I go to the black history section, and I pick a book. Not a Christian book, I just pick a book. And for the last seven years, I am astounded how every book I've picked has had some kind of personal application or something about our area and, and God being involved. So I was driving my daughter this past week from Dallas to Orlando, and we went to a Barnes & Noble to Mississippi just to say, you know, we went to cross Mississippi off as a state. And I bought a book that I read in less than 24 hours. It's called A Most Beautiful Thing. Uh, it's about the first all-black rowing team from a high school, get this, on the west side of Chicago. Arshe Cooper is the author it's an amazing story. It's so amazing, we're actually going to sell it in the bookstore, even though it's not a Christian book, and may have some bad language, which I know you guys have heard before. Arshe will give you a detail of what life looks like in the inner city, what inner city poverty looks like, what drugs look like in the inner city. Here's the beautiful takeaway. His mom, who was a crack addict, spent all the welfare money and food stamp money on her drug addiction, got literally saved in an inner city church, and I mean literally saved, turned her whole life around. The story interweaves men who came from the outside to the inside, worked in schools, helped these kids along the way. Here's why I'm sharing this. We've been involved in the inner city and working with people uh, like Arce for 27 years. I go there personally. Places like the Bronx in New York, Kensington, uh, North Philadelphia. When I read Arshay's book, I could feel the blood going through my veins again. You know why? Because God's always working. That's my takeaway. That's my lesson. See, you may have taken a time out. Hey, God, I'll take a year off. God didn't take a year off. He's always moving. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro. God said, I'll pluck this person. We'll start an extension campus. I'll save this person on the lawn. I, my, my blood got moving again. I thought of all the years we've spent, all the fruit we've seen, working with people that were marginalized and poor. And I began to dream again of kids that were kind of falling through the cracks, coming to Innovate Academy, starting basketball camps. Uh, so many things we could do. I'm going to be a little prophetic here. In the coming months, there's going to be a slow trickle of people back to our church who used to call Calvary home. And I want to say to everyone, when you come back, you're coming back to a different church. 
There's going to be different people here, a different culture here. There's going to be different staff here. All with the goal of praying that God would move in a powerful way. What was God up to in the pandemic? Solomon said, we don't know. Did God thin out our ranks? Probably. In Isaiah, God said, I'm sick of your services. I'm sick of your songs. I'm sick of, because you're not living it. God's not concerned with how many people eat in the mess hall. He's concerned with how many people are in the front lines. Did God shut down the consumer church? Maybe. I don't know. Ask him when you get there. I know this. God was involved with COVID-19. It was a season that hopefully we embraced and we learned from. And hopefully with all the foundations being kicked out, we realize Only two things really matter, the word of God and people. If Kobe Bryant's death taught us anything, is that life can turn on a dime. None of us is promised tomorrow. Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes by saying this. Remember your creator in the day of your youth. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every sacred thing, whether it is good or evil. Anybody who's young out there thinking, I'll serve God later, I'll serve God when I get married, I'll serve God after I sow my wild oats. No, Solomon said, I'm the wisest man ever lived. Serve God now.